Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 22nd, 2018. gonna be all over the map today but i'm convinced there's a theme in here somewhere Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up that Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really really bizarre, crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward is far from what God's Word says. It's not a right handling of any of these biblical texts. And as a result of it, what people are preaching and now believing is not what God's Word at all reveals. And it isn't even close to what Christians have historically believed, taught, confessed, and even been martyred for in the past. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone's going to be in danger of being martyred for believing that God's going to make them rich. You see what I'm saying? All right, so uh, let's talk about what it is we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, and uh, we're going to be heading to the YouTube channel of Dr. Michelle Corral. And uh, we're going to be listening to her prophetic word telecast titled Anointing and Appointing for Ministry. Anointing and Appointing for Ministry. We're going to try to track with her to see if we can decipher what what her hermeneutic is. It's, it's a bad one for sure, but I mean, yeah, we'll we'll see if we can decipher this for you all. Then we are going to do... Uh, I'm going to do this as a New Apostolic Reformation update, an NAR update. We're going to head over to Bethel Church in Redding, California, and we're going to listen to Chris Vallotton 
say that God lets you see rich people in order that you can see what God wants you to become. And talk about a twisting of God's word, absolute botching of what God's word really says. I mean, wow, uh, his um, his uh, handling of scripture is like in the epic fail category. I, I, the only way I can describe it is as an epic fail. Then we are going to uh, we're going to head over to Elevation Church. And we're going to listen to Stephen Furtick for uh, a, a little bit. And the, the name of his sermon is Danger in the Distance. Danger in the Distance. And we're going to note, we're going to, we're going to pay close attention to the exact kind of Bible twisting that he engages in. Now, he's known for, uh, and we're the ones who created the term here at Fighting for the Faith, he's known for narcissism, which is narcissistic eisegesis. However, he is also capable of straight-up eisegesis. And you think, what is eisegesis? I mean, how do you spell that? I-C-E and J-E-S-U-S? No, <laughs> that's not how you spell it. It's E-I-S-G. Yeah, yeah it's eisegesis. And eisegesis means to read something into the biblical text. And we're going to pay attention to it's something he literally sticks into the biblical text that isn't there at all, and it's part of his primary point, you know, in in the uh, launching into the sermon. And then uh, we'll round out hour number one by heading over to the Believer's Voice of Victory, and uh, Kenneth Copeland is doing a teaching on God willing to heal you, and boy, is this a clever twisting of God's word, really really super clever. And I think the idea would go something along these lines. And that is in order for something to be a doctrine, you need clear and explicit passages that state that doctrine. You know, for instance, we know that there is one God because scripture says there is only one God. This is most certainly true. We know that Christians are saved by grace through faith apart from works because Scripture explicitly says that. So, uh, you know, the, you, you get the idea. So in order for you know a doctrine to actually be true, we need clear passages that say it. But uh, Kenneth Copeland is, is one of the most skilled twisters of God's Word out there in the heretical market today. And uh, he is capable of making false doctrines that don't exist in Scripture appear as if they are biblical using what I you can only describe as sophistry. This is true uh, hermeneutical sophistry that we're going to be hearing from Kenneth Copeland. Then in hour number two, we're going to be heading to Audacious Church, and we're going to listen to a fellow by the name of Ray Johnston, who is from you know a, a church in you know Bayside, California, in that area. And uh, it's all about, well, getting your passion back. And very interesting twists of Scripture in this. But, you know, it's one of these things where, over and again, we talk about the important distinction between law and gospel here at Fighting for the Faith. And this is going to be in the category of really bad law, really, really bad law, because it's, you know, it's not even a real command and there's no anchoring in it. And so we're we're going to talk about what is it? What is the reason why Christians are really 
passionate and zealous about Christ? What makes them passionate and zealous for Christ? And what would be able to sustain them in their passion and zealousy for Christ? You know, so that'll be our number two. So hope you're uh, making yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground we need to cover. And uh, since we're going to do a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, let's do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, there they are standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the chairman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowly ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowly ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowly ball, a penny a pitch. Rolly bowl a ball, rolly bowl a ball, singing rolly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, so we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Dr. Michelle Corral. Her prophetic word telecast for March, anointing and appointing for ministry. See if you can make heads or tails of this teaching. Here we go are assigned to positions. As a matter of fact, a teacher in school can assign a child to pass out papers. But you must understand when it's in ministry, it is not just an assignment. It's an appointment. And I want to make that clear because the word ma'ad means to remain steadfast, unmovable. The word... So the ma'ad, okay. Yeah, it's Hebrew. So remain steadfast and unmovable. So if you get appointed to a ministry position, ma'ad means you got you can't move. You you got you know, okay, it's an appointment. Ma'ad in Hebrew, the word for appoint means to remain, to be strong, to endure. How many here today want to be able to endure every attack that would come against you to remove you out of your place of ministry? Put your hands up and say, dear Jesus, I ask you today that I would be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Continuing in the context of Numbers chapter one, the Bible says you will Point the Levites over the tabernacle of the congregation, over the vessels and all things that belong to it. The ta- all right. So, okay, this is weird. Now, the reason why this is weird is uh, when it comes to rightly handling biblical texts, you have to pay attention to the context. So she's supposedly preaching from Numbers chapter 1. Um, it would help if I spelled it right. <laughs> Okay, so Numbers chapter 1. Let's take a look at some of the um, earlier context in the chapter. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year. Got it? Okay. So verse 17, Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, uh, named earlier in the chapter. On the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together 
who registered themselves by clans, by fathers, according to the number of the names from the 20 years old and upward, head to head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so we got the naming of the people of Reuben, the heads of the clans of Gad, Judah, Issachar in 28, Zebulun in 30, Joseph in 32, 34, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali got it okay, but now we're up to verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But a no a point, a point, uh-huh, Pakad, okay, the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all of its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. Hmm. Okay, now you're going to note something. This is a historical narrative. Um, Dr. Uh, Michelle Corral here is somehow extrapolating these weird principles out of this text, turning a pre, a descriptive text into some kind of a prescriptive text for us. But this is not a prescription. This is describing historically how the Levites were established in their temple duties or tabernacle duties. Hmm. Tabernacle is the symbol of the realm of the spirit. Say this with me. The tabernacle is a symbol of the sphere of the spirit. The sphere of the spirit means it's the realm of the spirit. That <laughs> it is a symbol of the spirit of the spirit. Uh-huh. Ruach machur. Ruach. Got it. Yeah, okay. Means that the Levites had a very special position to be assigned to the supernatural realm. They lived in the supernatural realm. And, and let us continue. No, really, they didn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, to look at the duties of the Levites. There was nothing supernatural about it. They were busy killing sacrificial animals, sprinkling blood, burning incense and things like, yeah, their duties were about as earthy as they got. Beloved, I want us to see here as we continue in context, going to chapter eight, chapter eight gives us a clear distinction of what the Levites are supposed to do. And we're seeing here in Numbers chapter 8, say this with me, when I see the Levites, I see myself. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, really, you really shouldn't do that. Wow, this woman is uh, looney tunes in her approach to scripture. Faux show, okay. Because today, beloved saints, you are going to be consecrated to the Lord in service the same way that the Levites were consecrated to God. All right. Yeah, no, you're just, this is windbaggery. Um, <laughs> sorry, but no biblical text teaches this is, you know, at all. This woman is just making stuff up. So I want us to look just for a moment at this text. The Bible says in verse six, all right, we need to study this so the anointing can come upon us. The Bible says in verse six, 
Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and you shall do on this. You shall do unto them. You shall cleanse them and sprinkle them with the purifying upon them and let them shave their flesh and wash their clothes to make themselves clean. Many people that would read this text would say, this is irrelevant. This has nothing to do with today. And this seems to be a a boring piece of Hebrew history. But I want you to know that there is nothing in the Bible that is dead or irrelevant. Now, that is true. Okay. All scripture is God breathed. It's profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness, things like that. There, There is no portion of scripture that is irrelevant or superfluous. I would agree with that. However, m- making that point doesn't mean that the next thing that she says is the actual biblical relevance of that particular text. Watch what she does next. Thing in the Bible is personal, powerful, prophetic, and relevant. I want you to know that not everything that Moses taught, not every word that Moses spoke is written in here. Only the words that God wants every generation to know. That means if it's recorded in the Bible, God wants you to know it. That's true. I mean, that's an actual fact. Yes means if it's in the Bible, it does have personal, powerful, prophetic, relevant meaning for us right now. Personal, powerful, prophetic, relevant meaning. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is starting to get really sketchy, you know, really sketchy. So let's take this into the relevant text and see before the Levites were actually consecrated to God. Let's go down a little further because we're going to see the context. But the Bible says here, the Bible says it very clearly um, in verse 10. The Bible says you will bring the Levites before the Lord and the children of Israel will put their hands upon the Levites. Verse 11 is the key. And Aaron will offer the Levites before the Lord for an offering of the children of Israel that they may execute the service of the Lord. Verse 13. And thou shalt set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and you will offer them as an offering before the Lord. So this means this is a tribe that is going to be offered as an offering. That means Everything in this tribe is going to be a sacrificial offering of service for one reason, that the presence of God would remain in the camp. Touch your neighbor and say, everything I do that God has called me to do is for the sake of the anointing. Oh, man. Evil Knievel could not jump that canyon of logic. Wow. Yeah, she's really gifted in that sense. By the way, she shouldn't be preaching. Yeah, God's word forbids that. And uh, you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. You just need to read English to know that. And what she's saying is not at all what the significance is of the tribe of Levi, prophetically, relevantly, or any other adverb that you can throw in front of it. Yeah, twisting of God's word, to say the least. All right, moving along, let's throw this under the uh, New Apostolic Reformation bucket. Here we go. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. 
By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, so we're heading over to the uh, to you. Oh man, to Bethel Church and their Bethel moments. They actually published this. This is not. This was not originally put out there by their critics. This is put out by Bethel. And uh, the the idea is that Chris Valentin is going to be making the argument that God lets you see rich people <laughs> so that you can see what God wants you to become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> where is he getting this from? You're sitting there going, where on earth can you get come up with a doctrine like that? Well, it's funny that you would ask. It's from 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 2, which states, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that's Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, and apparently this verse teaches that you have to see something in order to become something. Uh-huh. So if you've never seen a rich person, then you can't become a rich person. So you, God, the reason why God lets you see rich people is so that you can become rich because that's what God wants you to be. Think I'm making that up? Oh, I'm not. No, no, I'm not making that up at all. Here's Chris Valentin. When you're trying to change your life and you're like, God, let's just use money because it's so easy to illustrate and it offends people. And Jesus talked more about money than anything. And I really don't... No, actually, that's not true. Jesus did not talk about money more than anything. That's an absolutely false statement. We've covered that in the past here at Fighting for the Faith. About money, but it's so easy to illustrate. Just say you're broke and, you're, and you've been broke your whole life. Your, your mother was broke. Your grandfather was broke. Your grandmother's broke. You're just broke. And you're praying, God, I'm broke. I'm so tired of being broke. I don't want to be broke anymore. And the next thing that happened is God sends Johnny Rich. He has the car you want, the house you love. Now, I understand lusting, uh, you know, the boastful. I understand. You know, no, I'm not talking about that. And- yeah, that's called coveting. God's word forbids it. Yeah, weird. Um, <laughs> you're just saying this guy's not teaching what is true here. Trying to demonstrate a principle. When you pray for wealth, you say, God, I want to be delivered from this. God sends you Johnny who has everything you want. If you have a poverty spirit, you're jealous of Johnny, and you don't... Re- if if you have a poverty spirit, what? You know, by the way, uh, can you point out to me in the Bible where poverty spirits are mentioned? I'd like to see that. Anything from Johnny. But if you realize that you cannot become what you haven't seen or heard, and the reason why Johnny sent... The reason why God sent Johnny into your life was to show you what's possible. Oh, good grief. No, no biblical text says this. This is a total twisting of uh, 1 John. Wow. 
See, when you pray, you're like, God, deliver me from poverty. He sends you Johnny, the rich guy. And you're like, God, you make me feel miserable. And God's like, no, I was trying to show you what's possible. Because I'm no respecter of persons, and if I did it for him, I'll do it for you. But you can't be... No biblical text says this. In fact, Scripture is very clear that many people have shipwrecked their faith by desiring to be wealthy. Yeah, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Uh, yeah, wow, this is unbelievable. I'm what you haven't seen or heard. And oftentimes God sends the answer in the picture of something he wants to do in our life, and we're jealous of it instead of embracing it. No biblical text teaches this, especially First John. Let me note, you were made like Jesus, but until you see him, you can't become like him. John, First John 4, when we see him, we become like him. I can't become what I haven't seen or heard. So when I'm praying for... You can't become what you haven't seen or heard. Like, like as if there's like an actual text that, that, this doesn't teach this, but there's a text that really says that. Yo, it's a, it's a, a ironclad law of God's creation and, and the universe. You can't be what you haven't seen. I became a human before I ever saw a human. That was weird. Yeah. Change. God sends me a picture of a change. He sends me people who have what I want, not so, I, not so I can take it from them, but so I can get it from him. If I want to change my life, I have to change my thinking. If I want to change my thinking, I have to hang around with people who are thinking right. Right, those rich people, they're the, they're the right thinkers out there. The rest of us just have poverty spirits. Wow, is that a horrific twisting of God's word. Yeah, that's... Um, Definitely under the greedy, selfish teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be taught um, category. Whoa. Okay. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash buyer Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at buyer Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Stephen Furtick and Kenneth Copeland. Don't want to miss them. We will be right back. Your words have no power to create reality. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Okie Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit and we saw 12 people heal the word of knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost hokey pokey? Can 
right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. He can Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. Just start, we start doing the whole, we'll put your left foot in, your right foot in, both of my knees, you know, one at a time. I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain. I said, and you said, start checking yourself. I just squat down. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord, for new knees in yes. Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple of, about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore. Uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in. Take your whole head out and put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, and you shake it, 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 and you shake it. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. 
This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think there are a lot of Bible twisters out there, and they might actually be in your church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website. There you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and our ranks are based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, by the way, is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron, you can click on the Become a Patron button and and support us via Patreon. And if you'd like to uh, support us the traditional way, you can do so by sending your gift to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, time for a Stephen Furtick update. Let's do this. You walked up to the pulpit like you were a man Strategically cut to the new style. The beaver was fake and hot. You had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud. All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor. You'd be their mentor, and you're so vain. 
probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? Heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right, so we're heading over to Elevation Church. And uh, Stephen Furtick, King of the Narsegetes, and we're going to uh, pay close attention to his hermeneutic here. It's not quite straight up Narsegesis. He's gone full-blown Isegesis on us. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. So we're going to be listening to a portion of a sermon titled, Danger in the Distance. Here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. I'd like to speak today for a few moments about danger in the distance. Danger in the distance. Okay. Um, already, I just immediately have a question. What is this text have it to do with, um, you know, distances and danger in them? I'm I'm just not seeing how the title connects to what you just read out. Certain phrases in our Christian vocabulary lose their power or at least their ability to penetrate our psyche because of usage. Like when we say grace, this is a phrase or a word, a concept that is so familiar to many of us that I am... Afraid when we sing Amazing Grace, we can barely, through our yawning, understand just how scandalous the concept is. I also thought that maybe one of our worship leaders at one of our locations would write us a song called Dangerous Grace. Because to really understand the grace of God is to understand that it jeopardizes the way you have lived your life and 
it will not be contained by our conception of it, but our conception of it must come up to the level of its efficacy. In Mark chapter... What? What exactly was he talking about there? I am... Okay, just a smidge confused. Let me back that up just a hair. Hang on a second here. I want to hear this part again. The way you have lived your life and it will not be contained by our conception of it, but our conception of it must come up to the level of its efficacy. So our conception of grace needs to come up to the level of its efficacy. Where do I find the level of the efficacy of grace? That was an interesting sentence. I'm just saying. We continue. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, we see an example of this kind of grace. The dangerous kind or the uh, high-level efficacy kind. And I'd like to spend the majority of my time in just one verse, the first verse, verse 40. Okay. So we're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 40. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Yep, that's all there is to that text. So, um, okay. says that a man with leprosy came to him. I looked in Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, and John's gospel to see if I could find a little more information about this man. Mark doesn't tell us much about his background, his hair color, his eye color. He doesn't even give the common courtesy of stating his name. Now, come on, you even ask your server his name at the restaurant. Yeah, um, okay. Just because it doesn't list his name doesn't mean that Jesus didn't ask him his name. We don't have the full conversation. We're getting the highlight reel. Have you noticed how... You know, action-packed the Gospel of Mark is, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is the caffeinated Gospel. It's as if Jesus accomplished all this stuff immediately, like, you know, at the snap of a finger. So we're getting highlights. And this man, who is the subject of one of the first miracles recorded in this Markan account, does not even get a name. We are not told his name, but we are told about his condition, which is leprosy. We're not given his name, but we know about his issue, which is leprosy. It goes to show that sometimes your identity can be consumed by your issues. Uh, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> my identity can be consumed by my issues. Oh boy. Okay. That is, you can become more known by what's wrong with you than who you have the potential to be. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. You see, you, Stephen Furtick, are known by your issue. You're a heretic. <laughs> so, you know, people like me who've been watching you mangle God's word for the, for more than a decade now, we, you know, we are consu- we think your identity is heretic. Got it. Okay. Is anybody here to the point that you no longer know your own name or you no longer have a real sense of your identity? 
Right. Yeah. Furtitic. Right. Got it. Or yourself. We are losing a sense of ourself at times because our issues have run so rampant that they have consumed our issues have consumed our identity. Now, when Moses met with God, the now pay close attention to this next part. When Moses met with God, think burning bush, Mount Sinai, stuff like that. Watch what Furtick does here. He's literally going to add stuff to the biblical text that ain't there. This is called eisegesis, reading into the text things that are not there. And so this is a full-blown version of that, and it's stunning because it's like one of his first points in the sermon of his fire was burning the bush but it did not consume the bush it burned and burned and burned and god spoke from the bush he said uh, i want you to know who i am moses said who are you he said i am yeah that's not how that account went down yeah you, you see uh i happen to know a thing or two about that text because you know i've like read it before you know and <laughs> And I was good with uh, reading comprehension. (sighs) So uh, the account of Moses asking God who he is. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Verse 13, it says this, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Mm -hmm. So you're going to note that part of the dialogue, you know, the conversation that Moses was having with the Lord uh, at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Um, that's a different account. See, Moses said, what if I go and they, they don't, who should I say sent me? And you say, all right, my name is I am. You tell him I am has sent you. But listen to Furtick's account again because it's um, – this isn't what went down. Listen to what he says again. Identity. Now, when Moses met with God, the fire was burning the bush, but it did not consume the bush. It burned and burned and burned. And God spoke from the bush. He said, uh, I want you to know who I am. Moses said, who are you? He said, I am. <laughs> see, you see, that's backwards. <laughs> Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? And God did not say, I want you to know who I am. Okay, well, who are you, God? And then he says, I am. You see, this this is not how this dialogue went down. Stephen Furtick's got this 180 degrees backwards. He's like literally inventing dialogue from Mount Sinai that didn't happen. Eisegesis, reading something into the text that isn't there. And unfortunately, the eisegesis don't stop here. It keeps going on. We continue. Moses said, I am is a good start. What comes next? And then God said without saying, whatever you need comes next. Where are you getting this? Because I will not change. I am. But what you will need in different seasons of your life will change. So whatever you need, I will already be before you even know your need. I am what you need. How many are grateful for an omnipotent, omniscient God? Who knows what you need and can be what you need. Now, some people. 
God didn't say any of those things. Moses didn't say any of those things. Yeah, like I said, this is called eisegesis, and uh, Stephen, Stephen Furtick's Bible twisting is just getting worse by the day. And rather than people saying, whoa, that's not what God's word said, they give him full-blown applause because, of course, he uses a bullpen. And you think, what's a bullpen? A bullpen is a section set up in his church where volunteers, their whole job is to fawn on uh, over his words and, and sound like they're totally blown away and their minds are blown by the, the profundities that are spewing from his mouth. Yeah, so they're all, oh, that's the best thing ever. He just added words to God's word. And uh, none of you guys caught on to it. Wow. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing, nothing quite, quite as wonderful, wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes, makes the world go round, 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 you round, round. Money, 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 money. All right, so we're heading over to Kenneth Copeland's The Believer's Voice of Victory, and um, we're going to pay close attention to what can only be described as sophistry. This is just a full-blown twisting of God's Word to make it appear that, well, Jesus always wills to heal you. Uh-huh. You know, it just on its face. I mean, so so let, let me just throw it out there. All right. So Jesus always will wills to heal you, right? Right. Well, see, I you know, so there I am. I'm sick with the flu, and you know, I'm you know, I can't breathe, I can't sleep, and I'm really miserable. And uh, you know, and and you know, I need chicken noodle soup and and you know, stuff like that, right? And so there I go. I pray to God, Lord Jesus, please heal me. I have the flu, right? And if it's God's will that I'm always healed, that in Jesus it's always his will, then how come when I pray that, you know, I, I don't instantly miraculously get better? Mm-hmm. We're going to note that uh, as we listen to this false teaching of Kenneth Copeland, it is slick. It is slippery because ultimately... If you're not healed by the God who always wills to heal you, it's your fault. That's literally how this will play out. But uh, let's let uh, Kenneth Copeland spin this false doctrine out. We will comment along the way. Here we go. Our studio audience is here today. Isn't that wonderful? Let's open our Bibles. Um, we looked at this one last week, but I, I want to go back to this because this is so vitally important. The, I, I, I've heard, I heard Brother Hagin say this. I've heard Keith Moore say this. Uh, I've, and others that I've talked to about it and discussed it with, with uh, other, Jesse Duplantis, Jerry Savelle, Gloria and I discussed it at length because 
Gloria, oh my, my. She's, man, she knows the healing ministry. The one thing that holds more Christian people in bondage concerning healing is not knowing whether it's his will or not. All right. So so if you're not getting healing, you're in bondage because you are doubting whether or not it's his will. Already, this is a this is a slick teaching because if you're not getting healed, well, you, it's because you didn't recognize that it's always his will to heal. Yeah, watch as this continues to spin out. Now, Hebrews thirteen eight. You remember what that says? Let's look at it. All right, Hebrews thirteen eight is where we're supposed to go first. This, by the way, is known as a uh, Bible twisting technique, known as proof texting. See, if it's always God's will to heal you, we should be able to see an explicit text that says that unambiguously. So he doesn't have that. So how does he come up with this idea then that well? It's always God's will to heal you. Well, we begin with Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So now we've got an anchor point using an out-of-context verse. Let me put it in context for you so you understand what this passage is actually about. Um, so uh, I'm gonna, I'll start at Hebrews 13. One, you're going to note that after the uh, inspired author of the book of Hebrews has assured us of our salvation, that Christ has bled and died for us, that he is our priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that uh, his salvation and his sacrifice is an everlasting, eternal you know, sacrifice once for all for the forgiveness of our sins. He says this, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in one body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange doctrines. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So now you've seen it in context. But see, he's ripping it out of context. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and always. Okay, now what? Hebrews 13, 8. And James chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. James chapter 1, verse 17, 
every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That means there's no change. He's, he's unchangeable. Well, of course, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right. So, yes, this is talking about the immutability of God. No, no doubt. Yeah, so Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So that's your anchor point out of context, quite abstract. Watch what he then does. He's going to go into another passage that's really not related to the passages he just ripped from context and then stick them together as if somehow they belong together in the formation of doctrine. Let's listen in. So anything he said yesterday, is he is saying it today. Mm, sophistry here. Never changes. Ever. That's good, isn't it? All right. Let's look at this in uh, Matthew 8, 2. All right. Head on over to Matthew 8, 2. And watch what he's going to do here. See, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh huh. And boy, is like I said, this is super slick as far as Bible twisting goes. He's quite adept at it. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, if it's your will, you can make me clean. Now, you see what his problem was? Man, he knew he had the power. This was, this was no problem to him. Let, but let's, let's think about the man a little bit. This is not just anybody. Turn over with me to Luke 5, 12. I want to show you something here. You remember Luke is a physician? And Luke will give you information um, that is particularly where sickness and so forth is concerned that, that the others didn't mention. Now notice this. There came to pass when in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy. He's not just a leper. He's stage four. This man, this man is moments from dying. Now, there's more to this than just, if you will. This is a man that has been rejected and kicked out and made to stay away. He's, he's sick. He's about to die. He's got this stinking nasty sores all over him. He smells like a sewer. The clothes he's got on, no telling. I mean, see, would you even heal me? Can you see it? Yeah. Would you even heal uh, now, note that neither, neither Luke 5 nor Matthew 8 make it appear at all as if there's a problem. No, you know, Matthew 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed Jesus. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You're going to note, kneeling before Jesus and saying, Lord, if it is your will, you can make me clean. That's a good prayer. There's no problem here. There's no problem at all. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. You see, this is an individual person coming to Jesus with an individual need. 
And he prays, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And he's on his knees even. And Jesus says, I will be clean. No problem at all. So note that Copeland here is uh, adding some things to the text by saying, oh, you see, there's a problem right there. You see what the problem is? Yeah, he doubted whether or not it was Jesus' will. There doesn't seem to be any doubt at all, none whatsoever in um, in this fellow at, <laughs> that we could detect at all. And he just let it, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will. I will for you to be clean. And he made him, cl- and he made him clean. He healed him on the spot. Cast away like me. Now, watch it. <laughs> Who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him saying, Lord, if he will, you will, you can make me clean. Look what the first thing Jesus did. It wasn't the first thing, wasn't he? He didn't speak to him first. He touched him first. Nobody had touched him. Now I want you to see, he fell on his face. And now what does it? He wasn't kneeling. He's he's flat out on the ground. I can just see Jesus not bent over on his face, looking him right in the face and touched him. One translation says, of course I will. Man, is this guy kind of creepy to listen to. Isn't that sweet? Love himself. Got down in the dirt with him. Didn't make no difference. He smelled good to him. Amen. Amen. He loved him and he, he, he put his hands on him. And immediately, the leprosy left. Jesus can can and will deliver you like that. Well, Jesus can. Nobody doubts that. But is it always his will? You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, please let it be so. But not my will, but your will be done. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting here. Madman and Gadara? Like that. Did you ever think about that madman? One, this, this, this ruler of the darkness ruling him? But he had a legions of demons that crawling around in his body and, and, and messing with his mind and his neck and cutting himself. If there ever was any human being that Satan could have stopped him from worshiping Jesus, it would have been him. He couldn't stop it. Couldn't stop it. And I'm going to tell you something, sweetheart. I don't care what's going on with you. There's no demon in hell 
can stop you from getting born again. There's no nastiness on earth that'll keep Jesus from getting right in there with you. Just, I mean, just get in there with you. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Deliver you just that quick. Cancer gone that quick. Yeah, the Bible doesn't promise that for us. There are plenty of Christians over the last two millennia who died of various diseases, including cancer, the bubonic plague, malaria, the flu. Yeah, this is weird. Nowhere, nowhere in the in the whole Bible, but particularly in the New Testament, Jesus didn't say it. No disciple said it. No apostle said it. Anywhere in the whole Bible, nobody was ever turned down. Ah, see, there it is. See, see, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, because Jesus never turned anybody down, therefore, therefore. When you come to Jesus and you need to be healed, that means you're going to be healed. Hmm. This is sophistry. This is proof texting, sticking two things together that don't go together. Think of it this way. If you were to open up your Bible, just randomly, you know, take your Bible and flip the pages and close your eyes and stick your finger down on a verse. And the verse said, Judas went and hung himself. Okay, and then close your eyes and then flip your Bible open again and put your finger down and then it says, go thou and do likewise. You see, God's word teaches that, yeah, you see, it doesn't work that way. That's what he's doing here. That's the type of Bible twisting he's engaging in. No, nobody ever said you have to keep this. God's going to teach you something. He teaches with his word, not leprosy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Nowhere did it say you'll have to wait a while. If it isn't in there, quit acting like it is. Glory to God. I might just preach a little while here. Hallelujah. Yeah, this is what we call scratching, itching ears. You know, I just, there are times when I just think, you know, it would be a pretty interesting irony if, you know, Sometime in the future, Kenneth Copeland died of cancer. You know, I, I find it fascinating that many of the TBN televangelists have done so. You know, uh, you, <laughs> you think of Tammy Faye Baker. Mm-hmm, she taught this same type of doctrine. Her husband did, too. And then you think of, uh, you know, uh, Paul Crouch. Yeah, he was a big advocate for uh, Kenneth Copeland and his and. Kenneth Hagen and they're teaching along these. He died of cancer as well. You know, just saying, it's kind of fascinating here. Hallelujah. Glory, 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 glory. I wanted you to see, see, once Jesus said, I will, that settled it for all men for all time. Yeah, no, actually it didn't. Uh, let me give you an example. <laughs> John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So uh, the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is the glo- for the glory of God, so the Son of Man may be glorified. Now, Lazarus loved Martha and her sister, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And, by the way, Lazarus died. Mm-hmm. Straight up died. Oh, yeah. And so I would point this out that when Jesus decided to delay rather than to come and heal Lazarus, since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means that when you're ill, Jesus wills for you to die. (laughs) You see, the logic doesn't work. He's totally twisting the Bible, trying to make it say something it doesn't say. If he ever said, I will, to one human being, he's no respecter of persons. There's nothing you can do except not believe it. So, okay, so, all right, there are a lot of people, but I believe, I believe, why am I not being healed? That's the only thing that stopped Jesus. Remember where he could do no mighty work? Didn't say he wouldn't, said he couldn't in Nazareth. They didn't believe what he preached. They didn't believe it. Well, if you don't believe it, you can't receive it. Right. So if you didn't receive it, it's because you didn't believe it enough. It's all up to you. It's, yeah, so, yeah. It's always his will to heal, but if you're not healed, it's because you didn't do what was necessary. You didn't believe enough. This is totally a demonic teaching. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading to Audacious Church. Listen to a guest preacher, Ray Johnston, talking about the importance of having passion. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. 
That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. this right. Get the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Audacious Church, Manchester in the United Kingdom. Guest preacher Ray Johnston from Bayside Church in California. The name of the message is Restoring Your Passion. Now, before we launch into the sermon review, I would just like to ask you, have you ever been excited about a particular consumer product or electronic device or vehicle? Yep. And when you were passionate about that, or maybe you still are, what is it that made you so excited to tell everybody about that product, that electronic device, or that vehicle? Think about that as kind of a opening thought experiment, if you would, and we'll kind of tease that out a little bit later as the sermon review develops. So let me back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is uh, Ray Johnston and Restoring Your Passion. Here we go. 
Um, if, any's got a, if anybody's got a Bible, turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. If you don't know where Romans is, grab a Bible, hang a right at Genesis, and you'll eventually run into it. Romans chapter 12. Um, our church started because there were two copycat teenage suicides 20 years ago in Granite Bay, California. And a group of four people began to raise up that God would raise up a church that would attract teenagers. I did not want to be a pastor. I was having a great time writing books, traveling, training leaders, and speaking. I did not want to be a pastor. God dragged me into this thing. And so we launched a church called Bayside. We almost launched it and called it Baywatch. We went with Bayside, and that was probably a smart move. And it has exploded like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, it has nothing to do with me. It has been a complete God thing. Occasionally, I walk up to our church and go, I cannot believe what God is doing. And God says, well, you didn't even want to do this. This is all me, not you. And But um, all, all of my kids have met Christ there. People have become Christians in our service every single week in every single service for over 20 years. It's been crazy. And the most unlikely people you've ever seen are in my church. It's just crazy. A while back, I walk in, and this massive guy, okay? I mean, it's like the Hulk has come to church, and he's taking up half the front row, okay? Well, I got no clue who this guy is, but I know it's his first time in our church because he had a tie on. And sitting now, the other half of the row is taken up by a huge guy, but he's a football coach. He's a Christian that I know this dude. Okay. And so at the end of the service, we give an invitation and say, if you met Christ today, raise your hand. Bam. The Hulk's paw goes up, indicating he's prayed. So I watch him after the service. We have so many people become Christians. We probably- Okay. So notice he wanted people to to actually open up their Bibles to Romans 12, but he hasn't told us anything about what's in that text. So instead, what we're getting is, well, anecdotal stories from his life. That's a bad sign. I mean, and I mean that, like, really bad sign. We continue. I finally put up a table and said, I raised my hand. I watched this, the Hulk's going, over the I raised my hand table, which is staffed by a former Los Angeles Police Department cop who then prays with people and gets out his gun and it's California. So the, so what happens is they, he prays with this guy. That guy disappears right before the 1130 service. The football coach comes running backstage and he goes, did you see the guy that was with me this morning? I go, everybody saw the guy that was with you this morning. He goes, do you know who that is? I go, I got no idea. He said, he is the head bouncer at the largest nude bar in Sacramento. And I said, how do you know that? Whole nother story. So that's the kind of stuff going on in my church. We then did what you guys do. We launched a leadership conference and it finally sold out at 4,000 people. So then we launched a Southern California leadership conference. It has just been a crazy season and it feels just like your church 
it feels like it's our church is 22 years old, but it feels like the first inning and God is just beginning to do this stuff. And I feel the same way here. I feel it's kind of like we find, we built a building and I feel like, what, by the way, the second, build your building, whatever it takes. The, we had 4,000 people at a high school. The minute we built a building, it jumped to 7,000 people and people, more people met Christ every weekend after we finally had a home. It was just crazy stuff going on. So yeah, what's crazy is, is that this is a supposed to be a sermon and I'm hearing nothing about what God's word says at all. We're learning a lot about you and you sure do seem to be kind of going overboard and buttering up the people there at uh, Audacious Church in Manchester, a place that I have yet to hear them rightly handle a biblical text during a sermon, but we continue. So it's going to be really fun. Have me back sometime. It's going to be really fun in warm weather. It's going to be really fun to watch what's going on uh, with you. The other thing, I, I got one other question uh, before I ju- jump into Romans. Um, do you, any, are any of you football fans? Are any of you Manchester United fans? Are any of you man? You're in Manchester. What do you think the chances are that there might be a few Manchester United fans there in Manchester? Uh. Are any of you Man City fans? All right, just had to figure out what God was really doing here, okay? Now, I want to read your verse. It's also going to go up on the screen. Romans 12, 21. One verse. One verse, Romans twelve twenty one. Now, weird thing that I've noticed about evangelicals, and that is, is that in their way of thinking, the book of Romans begins at verse at chapter twelve. Yeah, all that stuff about you know, you know, the wrath of God in chapter one. Uh, you know that none is righteous, no, not one. Chapter three, and then the great turn at the end of chapter three that. You know that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. They, they, yeah, they don't know what to do with it. They, they like the twelve part because, you know, when you get to twelve, you're getting to the portion where you get exhortation for Christians. Yeah, the, you know, there's, there's the therefores of the gospel. But fascinating to me that we're not going to hear the there, we're not going to hear the gospel like at all. Um. But we're going to get a verse out of context from an exhort from the exhortation portion of the book of Romans. Okay, yeah, that's that's not a formula for disaster. We continue, and I'm sorry, Romans 12, verse 11 says that uh, not 21, 11. Okay, so we get one verse, 11. This never be lacking in zeal. All right, so. Romans chapter 12, verse 11, do, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Wow, this is horrifying. Um, yeah, um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The exhortation portion of the book of Romans, after Paul has spent literally 11 chapters preaching the good news of salvation by grace through faith through Christ and what he's done for us. Paul then says this, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which he just spent 11 chapters explaining, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, 
Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually we're members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Now again, I'm going to point out, this is chapter 12. Paul just wonderfully, beautifully placarded Jesus Christ, the God you know, who demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins, told us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh-huh. And you know, note that zeal seems to be a very easy thing for people who have heard about how much God loves them. Important to note here. But here, just out of context, yeah, don't be slothful in your zeal. So you better get your passion up. Check your passion-o-meter to see if your passion levels pass muster with Jesus. You know, it's like Jesus is you know, saying, line up, all of you put people mustered, line up. We're going to do a passion inspection. We're going to check your passion levels. That's literally what this is going to turn into, and it's quite a mess. I'm going to pause right there. Never be lacking in zeal. One of my favorite authors is an author named Robert Fulgham. He wrote great books with titles like this, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, which unfortunately I read after spending $50,000 on graduate school. And Fulgham said in that book, he said, find a group of five-year-old kids and ask that group of five-year-old kids, how many of you can sing? What happens? Every hand goes up. What can you sing? Anything. What if you know the words? We'll make them up. He goes, ask them, how many of you can draw? What happens? Every hand goes up. What can you draw? Yeah, make it up. And then he goes, find that same group of hyper, passionate, full of life, five-year-old children when they're 30. And then ask them, how many of you can sing? What happens? No hand goes up. How many of you can draw? No hand goes up. They got a longer list of things they can't do. And then Fulgham asks a brilliant question. He just says, what happened? What happened between kindergarten and adulthood to stomp out the light that God put in every single kid he ever created. Uh-huh. So apparently those five-year-olds, I mean, they just perfectly reflect 
what God has made us to be. Yeah, that's a tacit denial of the doctrine of original sin. What happened between kindergarten and adulthood to stomp out this God-given passion and joy and zest for living that God built into every single human being he ever... Yeah, notice um, he's relying on Fulgham's book for claiming that God has put this into everybody. Not a biblical text. This is a sneaky twisting here to make it appear like, oh, he's really teaching what God would, you know, has revealed. But again, Fulgham is not the um, place we go to for sound doctrine. God's word is. We're created, and by the time we're adults, it's all paved over, and we have paved over souls. And it happens. No, we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, and that we are by nature child, you know, objects of God's wrath. Yeah, see, again, tacit denial of the doctrine of original sin. And this is part of you know the core piece of his theology at this point. To everything. Find somebody. They're a brand new Christian. How excited are they? Scale of 1 to 10. 5,000. Then you can meet some older Christians like, don't worry. We used to be like that. You'll get over it. And they get over it. And they become typical, boring, gray, cold, Christian, no impact adults. Okay? And the same thing happens in marriage. Okay? So the, uh, the newlyweds, what are they like? Make out city 101. We had a couple of while back, I look up in the stands at Bayside, and way back in the stands, there's a couple, they're making out during the sermon. And I wished it were my wife and me instead of them. The, um, and, and the, by the way, the average marriage in America lasts 7.2 years. All these couples start with stars in their eyes. I'm in love, I'm all shook up, it's the Song of Solomon, I mean, it's awesome. And all of a sudden, it's the book of Proverbs. A nagging wife is like a dripping faucet on a rainy day. And what, would you agree? Most marriages lose passion. Most Christians lose passion. By the way, same thing's true in churches. Find a new church. They're all fired up. Find a church that's 50 years old. They're dead as doornails. Most churches are so... Yeah, it's weird. The congregation I serve is over 130 years old. And I, the last way I would describe them is dead as doornails. Hmm. This isn't. Most churches are so depressing. You walk in, you're there for 15 minutes, and you look around at everybody's face, and you go, who died? The question should be, who rose? The, and so, and the problem is this. The Bible says, never be lacking in zeal. All right, so going back to my original thought question for you, you know, have you ever been excited about a product, a vehicle, you know, an electronic device, so much so that you ended up telling everybody about it? Mm -hmm. Where did that passion come from? Where did that excitement come from? Well, it was a good product. You, you know, it met a need. It, you were impressed by it. So the idea then is, is in you know, we, we have a term for people like this. We call them product evangelists. And this is why word-of-mouth advertising is so powerful. It's so powerful because it is based upon somebody having a good 
experience with something that was so blew them away that they can't help but tell everybody about that product. Now, I'm going to argue that if you don't preach the gospel to Christians, they will never have any zeal for Christ. And instead, when you read a passage like this, they're just going to sit there and go, oh, man, Jesus is already a wet noodle. And now you're telling me I've got to be zealous for him. Well, what has he done for me? You see, this is totally backwards. You want people to be zealous for Christ and want them to tell everybody about Jesus? Then you tell them about how amazing Jesus is. First John chapter 4 kind of gets at this concept. First John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, that's the point. If you're not loving people, you don't know God. Let me tell you, God is love. And see, then he goes on and says, In this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, you want to inculcate love within your congregation, zeal, a desire on the part of everybody to tell everybody about Jesus. Keep pointing them to the cross. That's what John did, writing to the Christians that he wrote to in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4. It's about his love for us. Let me tell you how much God loves you. And people will sit there and go, that's amazing. I got to tell somebody about this God. Uh huh. And what we're getting here from um, Ray Johnston is not anything about God's great love for us. Instead, nope, better stand and muster. We've got to check your passion levels here and see if you're passionate enough for Jesus. Because, you know, Romans 12, 11, man, don't be slothful in zeal and, you know, lacking in passion and stuff. So you better start getting your passion levels up. Tell me something about Jesus. What has he done for me? Tell me all about Christ. Hmm. And then I'll probably want to tell everybody about him. My zeal will not be lacking at all. My love will be overflowing because of his overflowing and boundless love for me. And then, the, and so, the, so I just want to say this. I actually believe God brought some of you here this morning because you need to get your fire back. Oh, that's manipulation. God brought some of you here this morning because you need to get your hopes back up. God brought some of you here today to say, I know it's been tough. I know your finances have been tough. Your marriage has been tough. You got teenagers. That's a riot. The, um, uh, I know, I know that you, you, in other words, you've had a discouraging year. You know, it's, I know it's been tough. I think God brought some of you here to say, you need to get your fire back because I'm still in control and I got better days ahead for you. Okay. So I just want to ask and answer one question. How do you get your fire back? Yeah, tell me about Jesus again. Because First um, John 4, 7, in continuing, really makes it clear that it's not that we love God, it's that he loved us, and that is what makes us love him. So why don't you tell me more about Jesus, please? Or if you don't, then you can answer this question. 
How do you become an old, gray, boring, lifeless, Christian, useless adult? Because I'm going to give you three points, or you can do the opposite and become a typical, boring, Christian adult. And I'm going to write a book on this sometime. This has been bugging me, so I thought I'd let it bother you. Okay? I love inspired people. Wouldn't you agree? I actually, we just did a conference. Everybody walked out inspired, which is awesome, okay? The, and I love inspired people. And one of my theories is this. Nobody lives well until they're inspired. Inspired people live well. Inspired people lead well. And ins- Tell me something about Jesus that would inspire me. Inspired people love well. Inspired sports teams win well. In other words, nobody lives well unless they're inspired. Would you agree? So when you lose your passion, how do you get your inspiration? And the problem with most Christian adults is the longer they live, the less inspired they get, but the more opinionated they get which is why nobody young or cool wants our Christian faith anymore because who wants to grow up to be an... Yeah, sorry. Scripture is very clear on this, that the reason why people don't want to have anything to Jesus is because they're already dead in trespasses and sins. It's not because we're not inspired enough. Uninspired, opinionated jerk. Okay? And so the question... Spoken by a guy who's giving us nothing more than his opinions, not an actual biblical teaching. Isn't that ironic? How do you get your passion back? Look at the rest of that verse. Never be lacking in zeal. And then it says this, keep your spiritual fervor, keep your spiritual fervor. And the next phrase is what? Serving the Lord. That's how you get your passion back. So how do you get your... No, it doesn't say the way you get your passion back is by serving the Lord. You stuck that into the text. It just is giving you exhortation there. It's not saying how that goes about. Your passion back, I want to make two major points. If you're going to write these down, use whatever you want, memorize them, meditate. But if you're going, I want to have more joy. I want to have more passion. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. How do I get my passion back? There's two major steps to take. And step number one is this. It's just ask yourself this question. Are my spiritual batteries recharged or am I dead? Yeah, again, um, where'd you find this list? Because I don't see it in Scripture. Are my spiritual... Why do people have passion? Um, anybody here have an iPhone or any other kind of phone? Anybody have the iPhone 10? Okay. This, this is an iPhone 10. I couldn't afford it, but I bought it anyway. Because all of my kids are younger, and they all had it. So they were like, Dad, come on, step it up. The... You know what's interesting is? This is the most expensive phone I've ever bought. It's insane. If the battery's dead, how useless is it? Completely useless. Yeah. Can you give me this battery? uh, Can you help me find this battery concept in Scripture, please? Most Christians are incredible at making sure the outside looks good, but the inside is stone-cold dead. We have a a lady that told me this story one time. She said, my son was one of those kids that was like loud, boisterous, and destroyed every environment we ever took him in. He was just a loud kid. Raise your hand if you have one of these. Raise your hand if you were one of these. 
What a shock, Lynn. The, and, and she said, last week I took my son, five years old, to a restaurant. We all sat down, fancy restaurant, and my son, actually, before, right before the food got there, my son said, hey, can I say grace? And before I could say no, he folded his hands and out loud, loudly, so the entire restaurant heard, prayed this prayer. And the whole restaurant watched it. He said, dear God, thank you, Lord, for the food. And thank you for everything and for the tablecloth, and the fork, and the knife. And I will thank you even more if mom gets us ice cream for dessert. And liberty and justice for all, amen. And this lady said, along with laughter from the entire restaurant, an older, cranky lady remarked, and my son heard this, and so did half the restaurant. Kids today asking God for ice cream, why I never. That's a disgrace. This lady said, as my son burst into tears and looked at me and said, Mommy, did I do it bad? Is God mad at me? She says, as I held my son and assured him, God was certainly not mad at him and glared at the lady. She said, then an older guy right then got up and this old guy came walking slowly over to our table. And she thought, what now? And she said, this older guy leaned down and pointed at my son and said, young man. So this, is, this story is presented as proof that the majority of Christians are stuffy, crusty, useless, passionless, cold-hearted uh, people. Hmm. I don't think this proves that. I happen to know God. And I happen to know God thought that was a terrific prayer. And my son dried his eyes and said, really? And he, then, he, then he pointed at the old lady and said, too bad that old bat doesn't ask God for ice cream. <laughs> and some of you should amen this. She said, a little ice cream is good for your soul sometimes. This, this lady said, naturally, at the end of that dinner, I bought my son the biggest dish of ice cream they would bring him. He looked at, his eyes got really big like sausage, and then without a word, he picked it up. He walked over to the lady. He put it down in front of the lady. He set it down in front of the lady and said, here, lady, ice cream's good for the soul sometimes. My soul's good already, so this is for you. The people... I want to say this, the single most important thing about you, your future, your emotional health is not who is the prime minister, it is not who's in the White House, it is Jesus Christ and you are your spiritual batteries recharged. Yeah, tell me something about him because it's not that I loved God but that he first loved me. Can you tell me about Jesus, please? Watch this. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you have ever walked in here and you walked in discouraged and depressed because of your circumstances and God zapped you in here and you walked out totally different. Raise your hand. Okay. The what? God zapped you. Yeah. Have you ever been zapped before by God? I have no idea what that is, but wow, those zappings, they, they happen, you know, there at Audacious Church.
But it's going on there is this. What's going on is this. Matter of fact, that happened at Bayside recently. I get this letter from this lady, and she writes me this letter, and she says, Dear Ray, I'd like to thank you for starting this church. She said, I came with my husband today, but I left with a different man. <laughs> California. The... And I went, I went, I hope this isn't what I think. I kept reading, and she said, my husband, God zapped him in the service today. His whole attitude changed. Yeah, see, there's zappings going on at Bayside Church. You know, instantaneous sanctifications taking place by these random zapping events. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like I'm being sold something. And he has never, he has never been the same. And, And I went... That's why, in my opinion, Satan will be on an all-out attempt... In your opinion, yes. ...to keep you away from your Bible and God during the week, and he will do every single thing he can do to keep you away from worship on weekends. The single... If you, by the way, if you're going, I want my passion back. I want to have a better year. How important is recharging your spiritual batteries? Look at this verse. I'll put it up on the screen. We put that verse back up. It's point one. The, uh, go to the next verse. Keep going. It is, well, let me just read it to you. Isaiah 40, 31. Do we have that? Good. Watch this. Those who hope in the Lord, what's it say next? Will renew their strength. You will be stronger when you and God are tight and your batteries are recharged. Second is this. You will. Whoa, 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 whoa. Isaiah 40, 31. Hmm. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. That's a partial sentence. Let's put this in context. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Three rules, by the way, for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Isn't it fascinating? He took part of the sentence, they wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and he interpreted that as, uh, you know, if you're tight with God, you'll, you'll, you'll have passion. And yet this text tells us so much that is amazing about God. I mean, literally amazing. Something to actually get excited about and promises that are there applicable for us. And yet he's not telling us any of those wonderful things about the Lord at all. Let me back this up. You can see it in how he just manipulates this text, takes it out of context and throws it at you. You need to be tight with the Lord, so get get going. Get get tighter with them, would you? Do we have that? Good. Watch this. Those who hope in the Lord, what's it say next? Will? 
renew their strength. You will be stronger when you and God are tight and your batteries are recharged. Second is this. You will soar on wings like eagles. Your life will go to levels it could never go to if you and God are connected. Okay? And That's not what the text was talking about. Wow. And it, it told us amazing things about God. Why don't you tell me something amazing about God from what the word reveals about him? And then it says this, they will run and not grow weary. You will have stamina you will never have. And it says they will walk and not be faint. You will have a high resistance to discouragement. Matter of fact, watch this. Raise your every, discouragement is a let me give you four quick facts about discouragement. Discouragement is a universal disease. We all get it. I can prove it. Raise your hand if you've been discouraged at least once in the last year. Raise your hand if you've been discouraged at least once in the last month. Everybody. Raise your hand if you've been discouraged in the last week. Everybody. Raise your hand if the source of that discouragement is sitting right next to you. Don't raise your hand. It, <laughs> The discouragement is a universal disease. We all get it. You, discouragement is a repeating disease. You can get it more than one time. Would you agree? Yeah. Discouragement is a universal It is a repeating disease. Third, discouragement is a circumstantial disease. It always has a cause. And the cause is usually myself or other people or my circumstances. It's always one of the three. Discouragement, universal, repeating, contagious disease, okay, and a circumstantial. And then number four, it's contagious. You can get discouragement from discouraging people. Is there anybody in your life, any relative you have, you know when they're coming over, you're going to get discouraged. You just know it. But, but for, like, yeah, is this based upon the American Medical Association's uh, vast research on discouragement? Again, you are full of opinions, really short on actual biblical teaching. But are there people? So are there people you can't look at when you preach because their face looks like the front cover for the Book of Lamentations in church, and you just can't look at them? Okay. Now, discouragement is a universal, repeating, contagious, circumstantial. But let me give you one more fact about discouragement. Discouragement is deadly. I talked about this at the conference. Discouragement is dead. It is a deadly. Matter of fact, here it is. Discouragement precedes destruction. Discouragement. I, nobody ever came up to me and said, I am so encouraged about my marriage, I'm getting a divorce. I am so encouraged about how things are going at school, I'm dropping out. I'm so encouraged about my relationship with God. Dropping out. Discouragement is the quicksand you get sucked into just before Satan. We have a definition of discouragement. We use it Bayside. Y'all ready? Here it is. Discouragement is the anesthetic that the devil uses on a Christian just before he reaches in and carves out their heart and wrecks their future. Uh-huh. Do, do you have a biblical text that reveals that um, truth about discouragement? I'd really like to see it. Because uh, you're giving us a lot of opinions, man-made doctrines, and every time you handle a biblical text, it's out of context. Weird. 
You cannot let that happen to you. And the only antidote to discouragement that everybody feels these days is to recharge your spiritual batteries. The route out of discouragement is to go, by the way, that means this. If there, there are a bunch of you here, if this were my home church, it would be the same thing. There are a whole bunch of you here that are going, I'm not a Christian. I was an atheist growing up. Yeah, I, was an eight, I talked to a guy out of becoming a Christian when I was 18 years old. It's just not look good on the pastor's resume. And there are a bunch of you folks in here that may not be Christians yet. I just want to say, as a former atheist and a former non-Christian, I'm really sorry. You do not have the resources we have to battle discouragement, okay? And if you're going, I want a better life, I want a better future, the faster you connect with God, the more strength you will have, the more encouragement you have, the more, and you will go to level, your life will go to levers you never dreamt possible, okay? Number one is this. Are my spiritual batteries recharged? Now, what? Now, just look at me for a second, okay? I lack passion. I want more passion. Step one is you and God. And that is basically, I got to recharge my spiritual batteries, okay? However, that's not the only step. Lots of Christians are going, that's, I come to church, I read my Bible all the time, and I still don't feel a lot of passion, okay? You know, they're kind of like, Jesus loves me, this I know, my pastor told me so, and that's all they got, okay? And they still, you can be close to God and not have passion because there's two steps, okay? And Oh, you've discovered two steps for passion, wow. Could you show me where those two steps are listed for us in Scripture with it saying that these are the steps for achieving passion? I'd like to see that, please. Notice that verse again. It says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. That's recharge your spiritual batteries. What's the next phrase in that verse? Though? It says, keep your spiritual fervor. What's the next part of that verse? Serve, which means this. It's two parts. It, you need both no, both of those are exhortation. Wow. Neither of those are steps for achieving passion. This is terrible. Parts. I keep my spiritual fervor. And then the point two is this, okay? Are my spiritual batteries recharged? That's the first phrase. Second is serving the Lord. And here's the phrase. Am I living to make great things happen? Am I... What? Where does it say I need to ask myself the question, am I living to make great things happen? You were like making this up, right? This is a joke. April Fool's Day is around the corner. You're just practicing early. Is that what that is? Living to make great things happen. Would you do me a favor? Uh, I want to take a little survey in here. Raise your hand if you're not dead yet. So I just got to ask you a question. Why are you still here? Why are you still alive? Raise your hand if you've ever been in a car accident. Okay, you survived. Why did God get you through that? Why hasn't God just brought you to heaven? I mean, it's better. It's warmer. Okay, and there's no politicians. The, um, why, why hasn't God brought you to heaven? You are only here for one reason. What is it? Make great things happen. Make great things happen. I thought that the job of the church is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching all that Christ has commanded. Yeah, where's the commandment to make 
great things happen. Could you show me that, please? You are here for one reason, to make great things happen. Which the pro- Now, so what's the problem with that is, matter of fact, if you don't believe the Bible cover to cover teaches that. Romans says, if you want to have passion, your spiritual fervor plus serving God, that equals passion. It's like hooking two live wires together and power flows, passion comes back, where if you just serve God and don't serve people, you won't have passion. If you just run around and serve all the time, but you and God are disconnected, you won't have passion. Yeah, th- again, those aren't steps given in that text. You're totally making all of this up. If you put both those wires together, God probably brought you. This will save you the rest of your life. You, act, you take closeness to God and making great things happen, and you hook those two live wires together, and sparks fly. It's all over the Bible, okay? Matter of fact, Ephesians says this, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. Yeah, you left the gospel part of that text out. Yeah, weird how this guy just keeps doing that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's as, if, um, it's as if he has no understanding of the gospel, no need or feels no need at all to tell anybody about the great things that God has done for them and how amazing he is. Just would you get busy serving God and serving other people because then your passion will come back. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, 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 I don't think so. This is a formula for utter discouragement because this is all based upon this man's opinions, not actual biblical doctrines. We continue. There's, you and I are called to that kind of stuff. Now, you know what the problem is? So why don't most... Now, this is Europe. I'm sure it's different. Most Christians in America aren't serving God. Most Christians in America aren't living to make great things happen. We have people, Glenn, we have, so if we have people in our church. Can you provide the data that proves your assertions here, please? I mean, you literally just said most Christians don't serve God. I'd like to see the data on that. That have enough financial resources to change the world, but they never do. We have people in my church that if they ever got more excited about what their money could make happen, then the next dumb thing they're going to buy, the world would be a different place. We have people that if they would serve, the world could be an unbelievably different place. And so the, so now I'm Notice, all law, 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 do, 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 do. There's no gospel here. This is a formula for exhausting yourself. I'm sure that's not true here, but it's true in California. And you're going, why is that? Because Hollywood, California, has been telling everybody, look out for number one. Put yourself first. And it's encouraging everybody to be self-centered. And you know the problem with that is? There are no self-centered happy people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm hearing nothing about Jesus and a lot about you. That's just the weirdest thing, Ray. I don't know how to interpret that. 
I can prove it. When's the last time you met a self-centered, happy person? They don't exist. Is anybody here single? Anybody not married yet? Let me see your hands. Okay. Um, if you're single, not one of you is sitting there going, I would really like to meet my future spouse. Where's a self-centered person? That's what I'm looking for. I'm really looking for some more friends. Where are self-centered people? That's what I'm looking for. The only route to joy is to forget yourself and give yourself in service and make great things happen. Okay? You know, that's the route to joy. So I did a little bit of this in the leadership conversation. Oh, dear. So here's the problem. Why don't people do that? Because there's a new idol in the world, and it's a church idol, okay? Uh, the, now, it, all the old idols, materialism, hedonism, humanism, all that stuff's still around. But there's a new idol in the Christian church, and it's affecting Christians, and I think it's wrecking Christians' future. You know what the new idol is? Here it is. The idol of safety. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give because I'm going to play it safe. And you know what I think it's doing? In America, we have these helicopter parents that protect their kids. It's wrecking the next generation of kids forever taking a risk. So I made a list. <laughs> See if you agree with this. We are the most seat-belted air... All right. So the idol of safety, you know, because helicopter parents, that, that makes the whole idol thing. Yeah. So... We're just not risk-takers enough. Yeah, let me back this up a little bit. <laughs> See if you agree with this. We are the most seat-belted, airbag, peanut-avoiding, gluten-free, bike-helmeted, knee-pad-wearing, hyper-insured, sunscreen-slathering, massively medicated, password-protected, inoculated generation in history. And all it's doing is wrecking everybody's future. And everybody's growing up now going, oh, play it safe. There's an idol called playing it safe. We're now really? There, there is. Okay. Do you have a biblical text that you can show me an example of somebody worshiping the idol of playing it safe? I'd like to see that from a biblical text. We're never going to give anything. We're never going to serve anything. We're never going to do anything because we're playing. The problem is this. You can play it safe your entire life. You can live in a gated community. You can lock your car. You can protect yourself. You can never give away any money. You can, and you can still die in a stupid freak accident. Would you agree? So I Googled stupid freak accident. Yeah, yeah, okay. Kind of like this sermon. In London, at the turn of the century, a giant vat of beer exploded and a 25-foot wall of beer spilled out into the street and eight people drowned in beer. (laughs) How many of you are going, if I'm going, that's how I want to go? As a matter of fact, check this out. In 1910, in Boston, Massachusetts, a giant vat of molasses exploded and a 25-foot wall of molasses oozed out into the street, killing 21 people. Apparently, 21 very slow people. You know, oh, molasses, walk for your lives. I mean, you can picture this going on, okay? The, um, you can still die. So I actually made a couple lists here. Most Christians never start Giving and tithing. Why? Because it might not be financially safe. Most Christians never... No, because it's not a New Testament command. Never serve. Why? It might not be safe. Most Christians never share their faith. It might not be... Most Christians will go all week long and never invite anybody to church the next weekend. Why? Because it might not feel... 
Most Christians never take a risk. They never take a stand. And the problem is this. Playing it safe shrinks our lives, shrinks our faith, shrinks our impact, shrinks God, and leaves you and I with shrunken up, shriveled hearts. And then you die and will spend years, you'll spend a billion years in eternity wondering, God gave me one life to make great things happen. And I blew the entire thing because I never actually went for it because I was afraid and all self-absorbed wrapped up. Uh huh. Yeah. God gave me one life to do great things. Again, where is the command to do great things? I'd like to see that again. That makes sense. If you want to have passion, it's two things. Number one is God and I have got to be close. My spiritual batteries being recharged is the most important thing about you. Okay. However, if that's all you do, you're a modern day Pharisee. When you take that and you add in serving God, living to make great things happen, the world becomes a whole different place. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. We got a guy at Bayside that has led more people to Christ than anybody I know in our entire town. You know what? Not a pastor. He's a business guy. Matter of fact, a while back, the guy comes up to me before our 11 o'clock service. And he comes up before 11 o'clock service and he goes, he comes on stage. He goes, hey, look over there, but don't look. I look over there. The, the, these three whole rows are filled early. And he goes, I brought my whole office to church this morning. And he, and he hits me in the chest and he goes, so when you preach, don't choke. <laughs> and I went, that's exactly what you should be thinking. Several of those people met Christ. Okay, the um, and and you know what's funny? That guy. How? I haven't heard you preach Christ yet. How are they supposed to meet him? He just has enough courage. He basically goes, "I am going here." If you ask him what his goals are, he says, "I got two goals in life." Here they. He's a successful business guy. Two goals in life. Here they are. Number one, I want to go to heaven when I die, and number two is I want to take as many people with me as I can, so I'm never coming here alone. Okay, that's incredible. Okay, the. The, by the way, if you're going, well, I don't think this could happen to me. I shared this at the leadership conference. It, God, matter of fact, God wants to use you. Are you aware of this? About, turn to the person next to you and say, God wants to use you. And then turn to him again and say, and he actually really means that. And then turn to the next person and go, who, me? God can use anybody and I can prove it. I was a senior pastor in Southern California. I got a promotion to be a youth pastor in Northern California. And we went to Northern California and, um, and I became a youth pastor working with teenagers at the wealthiest church in the wealthiest county in the United States, Marin County, California. And then after that, so I, I watched God actually work with teenagers there. And then after that, moved to Chicago, became a professor and trained pastors, and then we moved to our area. And we moved to our area, which is uh, basically Sacramento, the state capital of California. And I went, there's no more strategic place to be right now. As, as the U.S. goes, it has way too big of an influence on the world. That's not a good thing. Thank you, Trump. The, um, and, and there's a bunch of stuff going on. And we're in the state capital of the state that shapes the nation that has way too much influence in the world. I went, I can't think of a more strategic place to locate. And so we started this church there with 26 people. It exploded to 19,000 people, okay? But we weren't impacting our community. And then God took me out to the woodshed and said, you have got to care about the community. 
One of our, I live in the suburbs, kind of a nice suburbs. Um, one of the pastors in the city, this world-class African-American leader in our city is a good friend of mine. And a few years ago, he looked at me and said, I don't think you get my part of the city doesn't look like your part. The schools in my part are a disaster. The schools in your part are nice because you got all these rich people living out there with nice schools and all the poverty-stricken people in my part of town. The schools are a disaster. So I took a day off work, and this guy and I sat in a car, and we drove by every inner-city elementary school. And the more I drove, the madder I got. Because I thought, would you agree? I thought, it's not fair. No, no elementary school five-year-old kid should walk onto an inferior campus because of their race or address or social standing. It's not fair. I also went... In the United States, the government is not going to fix this because they're the ones that created it. And so I went, the church, by the way, the church can be the number one force for God and good in every community. So this guy and I had, we said, what are we going to do? And we, he looked at and said, let's pick a Sunday. Let's shut our churches down on a Sunday. And let's start serving the community. So once a year now, we shut our churches down. We interview every mayor of every city, every principal of every school, and every person that works with the poor. And once a year, no church on Sunday morning. We shut everything down. By the way, the week before, you take two offerings. Okay. The, uh, so this is social justice. But uh, where's the gospel? Again? How is somebody supposed to meet Jesus um, hearing a message like this and doing these things. And, and everybody cheers when you say the word offering, just like they do at Bayside. You take two offerings. And, and what happens is we last, the last time we did this, we had 200 and I think it was 226 projects. Businesses are calling us going, can we partner with your church? We want to do a project. So all these businesses and our church are changing the city. And at this point, this guy goes, we got to do something for the schools. And I go, what? He goes, let's shut our churches down and let's go to Arco Arena and just have Bayside Church at Arco. This guy was doing Bayside of South Sacramento. I'm doing Bayside. We have one church, kind of multiple locations, which you guys are moving into. And and this guy said, let's go to Arco Arena for one massive worship service. Arco holds 18,000 people. It's where the Sacramento Kings basketball team loses every week. And... And the, and we end up going down to Arco Arena. It's a Sunday morning. Now, this is like 30 minutes from our church. And I have told all our people, drive to Arco Arena. I know it's a 30-minute drive, blah, blah, blah. My wife, Carol, and I are driving down. And I have no faith about anything. I, my spiritual gift is worrying. Anybody else? God bless you. And we're driving down. And Carol says, what do you think's going to happen? And I said, I don't think anybody's coming. I don't think it's going to be empty. It's going to be a disaster. I think 10 people are coming. I think they're mad we shut the church down, and I don't think they're coming. And so I said, I think 10 people will come. We'll just take them out to breakfast. And we arrived down there. Well, 10 people didn't show up. The news media showed up, though, and here is what they reported. So I'm going to take you on site to what happened at our event. Check this thing out. So notice all of the autobiography here, nothing about God's Word, rightly taught, nothing about Jesus. We're learning a lot about Bayside Church. So here's the uh, news story. Well, to get a front row seat for this Easter service, you had to get here about two hours before the 10 a.m. start time. 
any longer after that, and you might have found yourself in the back row of the upper deck. And even at that, all of those sections were full. Yeah, wow. Yeah, the news, really, they got it. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Wow, aren't you special? Yeah, just telling me to have more passion to work harder to serve God, serve others, without telling me anything about Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. Scripture doesn't do that at all. Isn't that cool? And just to Clint, are you around? Are you coming up or what's going on? Um, the, just to close us off, I am over time. Um, I want to say this. Our people that day gave... Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit's now falling on the audience to convince them to do stuff and stuff. Over $400,000 in an offering, which we didn't keep a dime of. We went down and we completely rehabbed all six inner city schools in downtown Sacramento. We rehabbed the entire thing and triggered a movement of God in the schools of our country. Triggered a movement. Wow. And everybody walked out that day with incredible amounts of passion because when you serve and you connect to God in a deep way, all of a sudden... Yeah, how am I supposed to connect to God in a deep way when all you've given us is two verses out of context? You have hooked live wires together, sparks fly. And I just got a closing question. I'll flip it to Glenn. Why would you want to live any other way? Uh, um... <laughs> Yeah, I just felt like I got browbeaten. That's about it. And heard a lot of this guy's opinions, but I didn't hear any of God's word rightly taught. Strange. You know, again, you know, I come back to the text that I was uh, reading earlier from uh, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this is the love of God. It was manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love flows from God to us from us to others. And I learned nothing or heard nothing about God and the great love that he has for us. And this was just a passion browbeating, if you would. Totally miserable and utterly ineffective. And you're going to note, kind of congregationally narcissistic. Learned a lot about Ray. Nothing about Jesus. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Meyer Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Meyer Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.